This morning we're coming again to Acts chapter 2, and uh, I knew when we come to Acts chapter 2 that it was full and, and rich, and there's just so much, there's so much we could camp out here on, and we are, we could camp out longer. Um, but this morning we're going to look at something very sobering, and yet something that points us to something full of joy. So as we come back to this chapter, uh, we remember the noise that came from heaven like that gale force rushing wind. We remember the tongues like fire dividing themselves and resting on each one of the disciples. We remember how they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, other unknown languages. And the, as the Spirit was giving them utterance, we remember the multitude being astonished because they were each hearing them speak in their own language of the mighty deeds of God. And even as the multitude is asking what these things might mean, there's another group of people who are mocking. And they're saying they're full of sweet wine. They're inebriated. They're drunk. And so we come to verses 14 to 18. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. And you sense this, this moment of the first declaration of the full gospel in this sense of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Men, Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. For it is the third hour of the day. But this... This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. The the prophet Joel said, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male male slaves and female slaves, I will in those days Pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So we looked at the passage last week and we saw that this has been fulfilled. Uh, All of us dream dreams. All of us see visions um, in the sense that the spirit is within us now writing his law, God's law upon our hearts. That's the point. That's the theological meaning of dreaming dreams and seeing visions. So that's us. But according to Peter, what days are we living in now? We're living in the last days. We could call that the end times. For many of us, we hear the word end times, and it's like, you know, one of the series of books that did the most disservice to the Christian church in our day was the Left Behind series. And in, in those books, we have uh, a generation, maybe not we particularly, but has come to think of the end times as purely something for someone else think, Thank God we will not have to live through the end times and all the terrors of that day. Now, we want to, let's think about this. I'm not denying that there are terrors, right? But for the Christian, of course, we don't have those. But these end days, these end times, these last days, Peter says, are the days that we live in and that God's people have been living in since the coming of Christ. So the last days is not just a chronological time reference. 
when we hear last days. It is a qualitative, kind reference. When we hear the last days, there's a primary reference even to the kind of the days, to the quality of those days. It's a reference not just to the days that come last, but to the days of fulfillment in your handout. And so, brothers and sisters, since we are living now in the days of fulfillment, what do I mean by the days of fulfillment? The days when Christ's kingdom has been established. Who is sitting on David's throne? The son of David is sitting now on David's throne. The spirit, and we're going to come to that, Peter makes that point explicitly clear in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus, the son of David, is sitting now on David's throne. The spirit has been poured out so that all of God's people are now prophets. We all have the law written on our hearts. And so if we are living in the days of fulfillment, then we are living in your handout now in the last days. The last days are glorious days, brothers and sisters. The end times are glorious times. And so it's in this light that Peter continues quoting the word of the Lord through the prophet Joel. They are glorious times, but they are also there are also times of terror. How do we put those things together? The prophet Joel continues, and I will put wonders, or God speaks through Joel, and I will put wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I was talking with someone prior to the service These are not the words that you generally read as the bedtime story to your kids before bed, right? That's the point. They're not intended to be. Now, we've seen in the miracle of tongues the fulfillment of the first half of Joel's prophecy. That's easy. The Spirit poured out on all flesh. But where is the fulfillment of this second half of Joel's prophecy? It's like the first half we get, there's spirit-inspired utterances, the spirit's poured out on everyone, fulfilled. The second half we're saying, ooh, that's scary. And that's not happened yet, right? Why does Peter, though, quote this part? Why didn't he stop before he got to all this bad stuff with just the fulfillment? He said, this is what the prophet Joel spoke about. So why did he keep going and, and, and quote this part of Joel's prophecy? As if in some way, this was also being fulfilled in his own day. Joel's prophecy reads like this. Now, we're going to see something here, and I'm, 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 I'm praying this is going to give us a better insight into end times and into the moon being turned into blood, etc. Joel's prophecy reads like this. If you go back and read it, whether in the Greek or in the Hebrew, it's both like this. And I will put wonders in the sky and on the earth. Now, there's a word missing there that Peter adds. Peter, when he quotes Joel, he adds the word signs, emphasizing in this way the distinction between the wonders in the sky above and the signs on the earth below. Wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below. And then the following verses in Joel's prophecy, he goes on to describe 
these in reverse order. So he says, now let me start with the signs on the earth below. That's the blood and the fire and the vapor of smoke. And then let's go on to the wonders in the sky above. And what, are, what is that? That's the sun turned into darkness and the moon into blood. There's something truly terrifying about imagery like that. We all know it and feel it instinctively. It provokes in anyone who takes it seriously a visceral reaction of horror and fear. And that is what, in your handout, it is meant to do. I mean, the Bible has scary stuff, and this is scary. Nothing could be scarier. So what are these signs on the earth below? What is the blood and the fire and the vapor of smoke? It's really not complicated. Blood, in the Old Testament, is a reference to a gruesome and a violent death, especially death by the sword of a foreign army. It very often refers to unrestrained wholesale slaughter. So we read in the prophets, indeed, that day belongs, and this is an oracle against Egypt. So the day is the day against Egypt here. Indeed, that day belongs to Lord Yahweh of hosts, a day of vengeance, so as to avenge himself on his adversaries. And the sword will devour and be satiated and drink its fill of their blood. Ezekiel 28, against Sidon, the city of Sidon. For I will send pestilence to her and blood to her streets. And the wounded will fall in her midst by the sword upon her on every side. In Zephaniah, against all the wicked. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Ezekiel 14, this is against Israel. If I should send a plague, and his point is that he will send a plague, I will send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath. I will pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it. When we hear the word sign, sometimes we, don't, we think of something that's purely symbolic and has no reality of its own. But the sign of blood here is literally slaughter. It's, it's people being slaughtered wholesale, gruesomely and violently. So what about the sign then? And therefore, it's the sign. It is the sign of God's judgment. So what about the sign of the fire on the earth below? Well, fire in the Old Testament, again, this is what we call stock Old Testament imagery. If you're living in, in, in Israelite times or Old Testament times, you get this. We all hear this and we think left behind or we think end times stuff. And, and, but really, this was quite, quite known to everyone, this imagery of blood and fire and vapor of smoke. In Jeremiah chapter 51, well, it refers, it's a sign of a city's and therefore of a people's rape and pillage and destruction by foreign armies. So, Jeremiah 51. 
Their dwelling places are set on fire. The broad wall of Babylon will be completely razed, and her gates, high gates, will be set on fire. Against Nineveh, that was Babylon, now it's Nineveh. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies who will come in and fill your city with blood. Fire consumes your gate bars. Jeremiah 17, now it's against Jerusalem. If you do not listen to me to keep this Sabbath day holy, by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be quenched. This is, this is terrifying, violent, scary stuff. Jeremiah 21, I have set my face against this city, Jerusalem, for evil and not for good, declares Yahweh. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. And over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, you see the, the burning of Jerusalem. Isaiah 1, your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. So here's the picture. We get this picture. The foreign army that fills the city like a container, like a walled city, it's like a container being filled up with blood. That is also the army that burns the city with fire to the ground. So we're not surprised to see these two judgments of God, the blood and the fire, put together. Ezekiel 23, they will cut them down with their swords. That's the blood. They will kill their sons and their daughters and burn their houses with fire. The sign of the fire on the earth below is the sign of a city's and therefore a people's rape and pillage and destruction, it goes hand in hand. The fire goes hand in hand with slaughter and bloodshed. And so it is the sign of the judgment of God poured out. This is, this is the God that we serve, a God who judges in such a terrible, terrifying way. So what about the sign of the vapor of smoke on the earth below? Smoke is just the result of the fire. It's the sign that the city is destroyed by fire. So we're reminded of Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham got up in the morning and he went to look and he looked, he looked in toward the land of the valley and he saw, it says, the smoke of the land going up like the smoke of a furnace. The word there is, is vapor of a furnace. It was the sign of the utter annihilation of the people. In Joshua chapter 8, you might remember the Israelite soldiers lying in ambush, waiting. They enter the city of Ai, and they set it on fire, so that the smoke which ascended to the sky would be a sign to the rest of the Israelite soldiers that the city had been taken. Same thing in Judges. The whole city of Gibeah, it says, was going up in smoke to heaven. As a sign to the Israelite armies, the city was taken. Slaughter, bloodshed, the burning of the city, and the smoke ascending to the heavens. All of these are the signs of God's wrath and judgment poured out on people just like you and me. When we read of these signs on the earth below, of blood and fire and vapor of smoke, 
we see immediately that picture of the pillage and carnage and rape of a city. Horrific, unspeakable even, slaughter and bloodshed and death. That's the description of the terror of God's judgment. What then are we to make of the wonders in the sky above? We've dealt with the signs on the earth below. The wonders in the sky above, the sun turned into darkness, the moon into blood. First of all, we should not imagine the sun literally being turned into darkness or the moon literally being turned into blood. Now, I don't say that because I don't think God couldn't do that. God could turn the moon into a liquid orb of literal blood. Yes, he could. But that's not the point. Not the point ever in the Old Testament prophets. This is language, as we're going to see, that is meant to drive home the terrors of God's judgment. Brothers and sisters, we need to tremble, and if we are not in Christ, we ought to be doing more than trembling. Right. Of his judgment on earth, we're, it drives home the terrors of his judgment on earth with heavenly cosmic imagery. We know that the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky, they are like the ultimate markers of the stability and the structure of the world we live in. So we read in Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. It's woven into the the act of creation. So when God wants to assure his people, when he wants to really tell us how faithful he is to his word and his promise, he appeals, God never really, in a sense, he appeals to the fixed ordinances of the heavens, which no man and no nation and no power on earth or in all the universe can alter, and which have continued visible to all of us, we can all see them, and unchanging since the creation of the world. The sun has risen, the sun has set, the moon has gone through its cycles, the the stars and their courses in the sky. So Psalm 89 God says, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure before, forever in his throne as the sun before me. The point is, forever. Because that's going to be around. It shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. Jeremiah 31, thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the statutes for the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these statutes are removed from before me, and they will not be, not until the dissolution of the entire world for the new creation, I suppose, whatever that is going to look like, then the seed of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. So for anyone who's ever experienced a complete solar eclipse or a complete lunar eclipse, you, you know the visceral 
feeling. The feeling that our, we are creatures. All of a sudden, you realize, I'm not such a big deal after all. Not only am I not a big deal, I'm a little worm on a little rock in the middle of the universe. Utterly helpless in the vastness of God's universe. Even though I know what's happening, even though you know, scientifically, we know what's happening, we're still overwhelmed with a sense of trembling, with a sense of awe. But suppose, just for a moment, imagine that the sun and the moon were darkened without explanation. Now then, that's terror, right? So, when God wants to warn us, and he would warn you today, when he wants to drive home to us the terrors of his judgment on earth, he enlists the imagery of a corresponding judgment on the hosts of heaven. God uses this imagery to describe the terrors of the destruction of Babylon by the Medes. What I want us to see here is the moon already was turned into blood several times. Okay? The sun already was turned into darkness more than once. It already ha- happened in the Old Testament. We read that in Isaiah chapter 13. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming, and this is the oracle concerning Babylon. The day of the Lord of Yahweh is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land of Babylon a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That is cosmic imagery describing the terrifying, brutal slaughter and burning of a city. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be let like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them. They, these are all the nations taken captive by Babylon, they will each turn to his own people, and each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be pierced through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword, blood. Their infants also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. Behold, I am going to awaken the Medes against them. When was the moon covered and the sun blotted out? When the Medes came and destroyed Babylon. And their bows will dash the young men to pieces. This is quite literal. This is not metaphorical, this part. We have to learn, we have to understand the imagery, the cosmic imagery is describing a literal reality in the destruction of Babylon. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And it will be that Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the honor of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the same cosmic imagery when Egypt fell to Babylon. And these are harbingers of the final judgment. So there is language that tends to lead us to be, become, start thinking of something bigger than Egypt. But it happened with Egypt. So thus says the Lord Yah- Yahweh, So I will spread my net over you, Pharaoh. 
with an assembly of many peoples, and they shall bring you up in my net out of the Nile. I will abandon you on the land. I will hurl you on the open field. I will cause all the birds of the sky to dwell on you, and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will put your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood. As far as the mountains and the ravines will be full of you. And when I extinguish you, Pharaoh, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will give darkness on your land. The sword of the king of Babylon will come upon you. When we have the extinguishing of the sun and the moon and the stars, what's so terrifying about that is it's like the undoing of Genesis 1. The creation is being turned back on its head. And so now we see the same imagery used to describe the terrors of Jerusalem's destruction. By the Babylonians in 586 B.C., Jeremiah chapter 4, blow the trumpet in the land, call out and make your voice full and say, gather yourselves, let us go into the fortified cities. So all the people in the unwalled villages are all streaming to the walled cities because the Babylonians are coming. Lift up a standard toward Zion, seek safety, do not stand still, for I am bringing evil from the north and great destruction. And then Jeremiah, who sees this, says, My soul, my soul, I'm in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the shout of war. Destruction upon destruction is called out, for the whole land is devastated. I saw on earth, and behold, it was formless and void. What does it say in Genesis 1? Before God created, it was formless and void. So when Jeremiah sees this coming destruction, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, he describes it as going back to before God created, before God brought order to the world. And he looked to the heavens, and they had no light. I saw in the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I saw, and behold, there was no man. For thus says Yahweh, The whole land shall be a desolation. Yet I will not execute a complete destruction. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. Now the point here is, some might say, oh good, well at least the heavens aren't going to be literally dark. At least the moon isn't going to literally turn to blood. I can breathe. Well that misses the point, doesn't it? The point is that as terrified as you would be if the moon literally turned to blood and no longer shined, those are the terrors of God's judgment that he brings upon the wicked and the sinful and the evil. We see then that the wonders in the sky above are a corresponding symbolic, figurative representation of the literal terrors. See, If someone tells you ever that God's judgments are figurative, well, that's wrong. That means they're not real. God's judgments are real. They're just as real as us sitting here in this room right now and me talking. But 
But these wonders in the sky above symbolically, figuratively represent the literal terrors of God's judgment. Poured out on the earth below of blood and fire and vaporous smoke. Now we see then the sun darkened. We see the moon turned into blood at the destruction of Babylon, at the destruction of Egypt, at the destruction of Jeremiah of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. In each of these cases, there was blood, slaughter, there was fire, the burning of the gates of the cities and the cities themselves. There was vapor of smoke, the smoke ascending into the heavens from the misery and ruin of the city. What then is this judgment that Joel refers to? Now at this point, it is imperative that we read Peter's sermon in its historical context. Remember now, and this is something that has been very helpful to me, remember how Peter, who does Peter address his sermon to? Specifically to the men of Judea. Not specifically to all the pilgrims who came. Luke makes very little deal of all the pilgrims that came, of all the Jews that came from other nations. He addresses it especially to all who live in Jerusalem. Now, he addresses his sermon specifically not to the Jewish pilgrims from other lands, but to those who witnessed with their own eyes firsthand the miracles and signs and wonders that God did through Jesus. He says, you all saw it. You all saw all those miracles. Because you live in Jerusalem where he was doing them and in Galilee. Judea. And these were also the people who, as those living in Jerusalem, were directly implicated in the crucifixion of Jesus. So these people got a lot on their heads. Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Notice the wonders and signs there which God did through him in your midst. So I'm talking to all of you who are here, who live here in Jerusalem. And he says, just as you yourselves know, I don't have to tell you this, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, you nailed to a cross. You, the people of Jerusalem and Judea, by the hands of lawless men, and you put him to death. I ask you a question now. Let's just stop because we're all up. Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, right? Jesus called the people to him. Jesus ministered and loved and was humble and he didn't put out a faintly burning wick, right? But let's just be honest about this. These people who put to death God's own Messiah and beloved son Can you even begin to imagine what that is going to mean for them? Can we even begin? I'm not exaggerating. I'm not being overdramatic. This is dead serious. You know what it will mean? Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun turned into darkness. The moon into blood. Here's the point. It's interesting. It's very purposeful. Peter 
adds that word signs, and he does it out of order. In the Old Testament, it's always signs and wonders. Peter does it, wonders, signs. And then he says, he refers to Jesus and the wonders and signs, the miracles, wonders, and signs that Jesus did among those people in their own midst. Here's the point. Why does he repeat those same words? Since the people had ignored the wonders and signs that God did through Jesus in their midst, God will now show them a different kind of wonders and signs. Wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Jesus, Jesus already spoke the word of judgment in Luke's first volume. There's three passages. I'm going to skip the middle one, but I'll read Luke 11. It says, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Don't, don't, this generation is not a whole race of people. This generation means the people alive in that day. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, foundation of the world, Abel, the first one to be killed and murdered by his brother, all the way to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. I won't, I'm going to skip Luke 13, Luke 23. And following him on Jesus' way to the cross was a large multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop crying for me, but cry for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming within your own days, within this generation, when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. It's in light of these words of Jesus, and the knowledge, I, I, I guess, I think, we just take for granted what happened. Now, it doesn't make us anti-Semites. It just makes us recognize the fact that a generation of people that's, that puts to death God's Messiah. It's in light of the words that Jesus spoke that a constant theme in the early apostolic preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem. So watch this. When, when the apostles preached to the Jews in Jerusalem, you know what they were constantly bringing up? Remember what you did. Remember what you did. Was there a culpability for the death of God's own Messiah? So right here in Acts, what does Peter say? This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. Later, he concludes, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And every time they hear that, he's the Messiah and you crucified him. They know if that's true, what that means for them. Acts chapter 3, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And here we bring it up again. 
whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the author of life. You did that. You did that. Acts chapter 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, you sense something, you, you know something's going to happen. Whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And then Stephen. And then there's many other references that are in your handout. I'm just reading these. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So that the blood of all those people who your fathers killed might be poured out upon you. What else can this preaching mean? But wonders in the sky above. The sun darkened, the moon turned into blood, and signs on the earth below blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, they got it. They knew. They knew what Peter was saying, as can be seen from their words to the apostles. We strictly commanded you not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They get it. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, and they keep driving it home, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. It's in this light then that we read and understand what Peter says in Acts chapter, at the end of Acts chapter 2. And with many other words, Peter solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. Whenever you ever see this generation, it refers to the generation then alive on the face of the earth. That specific generation. So when Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these signs have taken place. That's what he means. When Peter says here, be saved from this crooked generation, he means be saved from this particular generation of people against which will be charged the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world Be saved from this particular generation which put to death the Messiah. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, be saved eternally through faith in Jesus Christ. But bound up in that salvation is also salvation from the blood, fire, and vapor of smoke that's about to be visited on Jerusalem. Jesus warned the disciples in Matthew 24, to flee from Jerusalem. He warned them, don't be deceived by the false prophets who tell you, look, there's a sign. God's going to save us. God's not going to save you. The city's going to fall. Josephus tells us, well, let me just read it. I'll just read this. He tells us what happened in fulfillment of Jesus' words in 70 AD. 
and why the Christians were saved because the Christians did not listen to those false prophets. They got out of the city. They believed in Jesus and his word. But all the rest, Josephus says, and Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived and witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem with his own eyes. He was there. Says, and he was with the Romans. He wasn't in the city. A false, well, he came in with them eventually, but a false prophet, he says, was the occasion of these people's destruction. Who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get up into the temple and that there they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. If they would have listened to Jesus and not to the false prophets, they would have been saved from that generation. Now, there was then a great number of false prophets suborned by the tyrants. In other words, the the tyrants were the Jewish fanatics in the city. And they they were basically paying these false prophets to tell the people that there would be signs in the temple. Get up into the temple. Wait for the signs of your deliverance. And they denounced this to them, that they should wait for deliverance from God. And this was in order to keep them from deserting. Because the the tyrants running the city didn't want everyone deserting. And that they might be buoyed up above fear and care by such hopes. Now a man that is in adversity does easily comply with such promises. For when such a seducer makes him believe that he shall be delivered from those miseries which oppress him, then it is that the patient is full of hopes of such deliverance. When Peter says in Acts chapter 2, be saved from this crooked generation, he's thinking of ultimate eternal salvation. He's also thinking of the destruction of Jerusalem. Less than 40 years after this sermon in Acts 2, before that generation had passed away in fulfillment of Jesus' word, the sun was turned into darkness and the moon into blood. The horrors of the Roman siege and sack of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as you would expect, remember how much of the blood of the righteous and prophets and faithful is being poured out in this generation? All of it. All of it from the foundation of the world to the death of Zechariah and even now, who had they put to death? The only Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What kind of judgment do you expect? And so these horrors are beyond all description indeed. This is and should be, and we would expect it must be, a time of tribulation for Jerusalem such as had not occurred since the beginning of the world until then, nor ever would again. Indeed, never again could any generation of Jews be guilty of such a heinous crime. So the first century historian Josephus gives us this first-hand account of the blood and the fire and the vapor of smoke. While the holy house, the temple, was on fire, 
everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. This is all with the sword. Nor was there commiseration of any age or any reverence of gravity, but children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner. One would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it, that the blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those that were slain more in number than those that slew them. For the ground did nowhere appear visible, for the dead bodies that lay on it But the soldiers went over heaps of these bodies. As they ran upon such as fled from them. So Titus gave orders to the soldiers both to burn and to plunder the city. But when the Roman soldiers went in numbers into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn. They slew those whom they overtook without mercy. And set fire to the houses whither the Jews were fled. And burnt every soul in them. And when they were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses, that is, of such as died by the famine. They then stood in a horror at this sight and went out without touching anything. But although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, yet had they not the same for those that were still alive. But they ran every one through with the sword whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood. To such a degree, indeed, that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. And if you think that sometimes Josephus is exaggerating, perhaps he is known to do that at times but certainly his exaggeration reflects the reality of the situation. And truly so it happened, that though the slayers left off at the evening, he says that even at some point they they got too tired of killing. They were so exhausted from the killing and the slaughter that they would leave off. Indeed, they left off when evening came. Yet did the fire prevail in the night. And as all was burning, came that eighth day of the month Elul upon Jerusalem. There's more, I think, that that gives a, a sense of it. In 70 AD, brothers and sisters, make no mistake in fulfillment of the word of Joel, in the fulfillment of the word of Jesus, the sun was turned into darkness, the moon above was turned into blood. On earth, there was blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Witness, then, the terror of God's judgment. God is a forgiving God. Jesus did pray on the cross, Father, forgive them. But because this city had done what it did in putting the Messiah to death, God himself poured out this blood, this fire, and this vapor of smoke on that city 
in a time of tribulation that surpasses all description. But now notice what Joel says. He says that all these things will happen before, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What, what then is the great and awesome day of the Lord if it's not this day? And the answer is, it is that day when God judges not just Jerusalem for its wicked rejection of the Messiah, but the whole world for its wicked refusal to believe in Jesus. This is if there was blood and there was fire and there was vapor of smoke at the judgment of the earthly Jerusalem in 70 AD how much more will there be blood and fire and vapor of smoke at the judgment of the whole world If the sun was turned into darkness and the moon into blood at the judgment of the earthly Jerusalem in 70 AD, how much more will the sun be turned to darkness and the moon into blood at the judgment of the whole world? This is important here. See, the judgment of the earthly Jerusalem in 70 AD. When did it happen? It it happened at the time of the inauguration of the last days. The last days began in the same generation as the destruction and judgment of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was judged at the revelation when the heavenly Jerusalem was revealed. God had revealed the heavenly Jerusalem. Now the earthly Jerusalem is judged and done. It's fulfilled now in the heavenly Jerusalem. And the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon all God's new covenant people. And so we see that this judgment of Jerusalem in 70 AD at this moment, when all the blood of all the generations of people gone before it are poured out on on that people, it is the beginning of the final judgment that is about to come upon the whole world. So we can't look back and say, Phew, I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad I didn't get have to partake in that. No, that that was the beginning of the eschatological judgment that will be consummated at the return of Christ. This then warns us not to play with our days or to play with a God who is just and holy and righteous. Even the earlier judgments, though they were not the beginning of the final judgment. They were harbingers of this final judgment. And so we do read in Isaiah 34, draw near, O nations, to hear and pay attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, as well as its fullness, the world and all that springs from it. For the indignation of Yahweh is against all the nations and his wrath against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be cast out, their corpses will give off their stench, the mountains will be drenched with their blood. 
and all the host of heaven will rot away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of Yahweh is filled with blood. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and its streams will be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone and its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. If those earlier judgments were harbingers of the final judgment, then the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that was special, that was unique. That was the beginning, actually the beginning of the actual, final, eschatological judgment of God poured out on earth. It has begun. It will be completed. Who then can be saved? Isn't that the question? And the answer is found in Joel's prophecy, which Peter quotes here. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And uh, what is our response to that? It, it is to begin running. Isn't it? To begin calling. To throw ourselves upon the mercies of a Lord who is rich in favor and rich in mercies. Who is this Lord upon whom we call? What is his name? In the Old Testament, he revealed himself as Yahweh. Now he reveals himself to us in Jesus. And so it is the name of Jesus that Peter goes on to proclaim and that we will come back soon to look at. You know, it's this name of Jesus that Peter proclaims, exhorting the people in the end, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Let us be clear. Salvation is not primarily from pain, sickness, temporal sorrows and sufferings. I mean, it's a sermon like this, it's a passage like this, that shows up and puts to shame so much of the Christianity today that we, that we see reflected on radio stations, and in, and in churches today. What is salvation? But it's many things. But it is, at root, this. Salvation from what? From the terrors. Of the final judgment that is about to come, and indeed has already begun to come, upon the whole world. What then must we do to be saved? As they asked Peter at the end. 
when we must all, all of us, all of us, without exception in this room, all of us must flee. We must flee from the wrath to come. And that means fleeing to Jesus, calling on his name. And knowing that, as Paul says, who quotes Joel right here in that same context, this one upon whose name we call is abounding in riches for all who call on him. We spend a lot of time focusing on the terror and the realities of it because we just lose that. But it is all for the sake of having displayed before us the riches that abound to all who call on him. Have you called on him? Seriously. Uh, Don't deceive yourself. Let us not go through the motions of a Christianity that perhaps we've been raised in, saying the right things and doing the right things. Have you truly cast yourself on Jesus Christ? Jesus, Joel himself, in chapter 2, he describes the judgment of Jerusalem in 70 AD as the beginning of the final eschatological judgment. So for him, it, it, it ends up being, in a sense, both. But in Joel chapter 3, it's just the eschatological judgment. It's the consummation of it, not the beginning of it. Let the nations be roused up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Send in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow with blood, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That is not the decision we make. I've, I've heard that, I think, in the past as though the valley of decision is when we all make our decision about God. No, it's when he's making his decision and rendering his verdict about the wicked. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness, and Yahweh roars from Zion. Not the earthly. Zion, the heavenly Zion. And he gives forth his voice from Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. What hope do we have in the face of this? Who can save us from this day of blood and fire and vapor of smoke? Who can save us? Joel concludes with these wonderful, beautiful words. But Yahweh is a refuge for his people and a strong defense to the sons of Israel. And who are the sons of Israel? To whom he will be a strong defense? It is not the old covenant Israel. Certainly they're Jews. It is the new covenant Israel, upon whom the Spirit is poured out, and who now call upon his name. And into that people we have been grafted. Again, Have you fled from the wrath to come? Have you called upon the name of Jesus? And having fled and having called, are you living like someone who has? Because you get that. 
That transforms your life. Every part of it. As, Paul, as Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, drive home the sober realities of these truths to my heart that I might daily be that one who has called upon your name, has cast myself upon you for salvation and deliverance. Let us not be numbed. Let us not be blinded to the realities of blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Because in fact, that judgment has already come. It has begun in 70 AD. And we know that if it's been begun, it will be completed. We thank you that in the face of these holy, righteous judgments, that we can come to one who is abounding in riches to all who call on him. May that be every soul in this room today. May we know the peace that passes all understanding of resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, clothed in his completed work, raised up with him, seated at your right hand in the heavenly places. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the hope we have. Thank you that though we were undeserving sinners, lost children of wrath like the rest, you by grace have saved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.